so much that you do love us and that you do provide all that we need. Thank you for blessing our church. Lord, thank you for the growth that we've seen. And thank you also for the growth that you're going to give us. God, we pray that you would help us to be deliberate in reaching out to our community. God, we pray for new people to come to know you. And we pray for us as a church community that we would be like you, Jesus. That our hearts would reflect yours. That our, that our characters would reflect yours. That our desires would reflect your desires. God, so often when we look at the world and when we look at ourselves in the world, we, we go, how long, God, until you just make it and make us right? But Jesus, you have promised that there will be a day. And until that day, Jesus, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Father, would you please speak into my heart and into the hearts of everyone here this morning by your Spirit. Help us to live by trusting you, to live by your faithfulness to us and to live in faithfulness to you. Speak, I pray. Amen. So we're in the book of Habakkuk uh, again today. Um, For those of you that weren't here last week, Habakkuk is one of those very well-known Old Testament prophets. Uh huh. Nadine knows where he is in the Old Testament. He's one of he's one of the short prophets. Um, uh, he's got three chapters in him, so uh, he's probably pretty easy to read because he's only got three chapters. But Habakkuk was writing uh, in the time just before the the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, was taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians, this incredible, violent mob that just took over the whole world. But, but before that time, Habakkuk looks at his society around him and he says, God, this place is a mess. God, there's violence everywhere. The law's paralyzed. It's, it's just a mess. What? God, you're supposed to be God. For goodness sake, God, why don't you just get your act together and sort it out? He doesn't quite put it in those words, but that's kind of what Habakkuk is saying. How long, God? How long, God? How long until you do it? And God arrives and says, wow, Habakkuk, you are, you're so right. This place is a mess. Tell you what, I am actually already doing something about it. Because there's so much violence in the land, I'm bringing in the Babylonians who are a lot worse And Habakkuk, we come to his response in today's passage, Habakkuk chapter uh, 1 verse 12. Habakkuk, you kind of almost see him there slightly flabbergasted. He says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out or we will not die. Uh, in In a better translation there. You're pure, you cannot stand the sight of evil. Basically, he looks at God and says, no. Just no, God. How's this possible? You're making it worse? I've been crying out to you for so long to fix things, and your response, God, is to say, good news, I'm making it worse. 
I mean, he knows a lot about God's character. Habakkuk knows God personally. He, he speaks of God as my God, uh, uh, as, as my Holy One, my rock. He says, I know you're unable to do evil. I, I know you're unable, unable sorry, to tolerate evil. I know that we will not die. I, I, I'm not saying that you're not going to bring the Babylonians, God, but I know that you're going to keep a remnant of your people because your promises are true. I know this, God. I know that you won't wipe us out. I know you. But what you're saying just doesn't seem to jibe with who you are. You're good, and you're bringing in the bad. I mean, these Babylonians take the whole violence issue to a whole new level. And after all, says Habakkuk to God, after all, God, don't you realize that as much as I have been complaining about my people, about the state of my nation, don't you realize that we're not as bad as them? We're not as bad as them, God. We're not as bad as that lot. Do you remember the first story in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Eve eats the fruit. Adam eats the fruit. God arrives. They're hiding from God. God finds them. God finds them pretty easily because he's God. And says, what have you done? And Adam says... Yeah, I ate, but you gave that woman to me and she gave me the food. So I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as you, God, because you gave her to me. And Eve's a little bit stung, because by the way, equal opportunity, the women are as bad as the men. And Eve says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not as bad as the snake, because the snake... I mean, it's a good thing that we, we are not like Adam or Eve or Habakkuk, are we? We might complain about the state of our world. We might even complain the state of our own selves. But at the same time, we can still be proud of us. Yes, our nation is going to hell in a handbasket, but at least we're not like the Burmese who commit genocide. Or at least we're not like the North Koreans. Or at least we're not like the Chinese. Or at least we're not like the Muslims. We're not that bad. Oh God, our nation is going into such bad turmoil. But thank you that we're not as bad as the others. And the thing is, all those other nations are probably looking at us going, well, at least we're not as bad as the Australians. Habakkuk even blames God. He says to God, you, God, have made people like the fish of the sea. They don't have a ruler and there's just this big enemy with a net and the net comes down and picks them up and throws them away. Destroys them and he gloats over it and he's proud. And it's your fault, God, because you've made people like that. And, and because you've done that, God, the wicked seem to thrive. And how long are you going to let that go on, God? 
I mean, Habakkuk understands what God is doing. He knows that, that, that his people need to be punished for the violence and the evil and the rebellion against God. He, he knows that God is doing that, but he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it at all. See, the problem is what Habakkuk seems to fail to realize is exactly what God's standard of righteousness is, what, what God's standard of being right actually is. Um, righteousness is a discrete value. It's, it's, not, it's something that you either have or you don't have. Either you're righteous or you're not. If you're a little bit unrighteous, then you're unrighteous. If you're a little bit righteous, then you're righteous. You're either or. Sorry, I take that back. If you're a little bit righteous, it implies that you're a lot unrighteous, which means you're unrighteous. Let me put it this way. Um, I was looking up toxins, deadly substances. And you've all heard Litvinenko with the polonium umbrella and the Russians. At least we're not as bad as the Russians. Um, And they inject you with that and you die after a month or so. Uh, Have you heard of botulism? Botulism toxins. Apparently, some of these, uh, 50% of people can die with as much as 5 million, sorry, not million, 5 billionth of a gram of botulism toxin. 5 billionth of a gram of this little thing, and you're dead. Now, when it comes to that, it doesn't really matter if somebody gives you a whole milligram, because as long as you've got a little bit of it, you're still dead. A little or a lot has the same effect. You might die in a second instead of half a second. And it's it's the same with righteousness, but on the positive side, of course. Or rather, it's the same with unrighteousness. A little bit of unrighteousness is just as effective in tearing us away from the presence of God as a lot of unrighteousness. Any little bit of unrighteousness and you're dead. God is perfectly pure. He cannot stand unrighteousness. He cannot stand unholiness. He, he is perfect. He cannot be where there is unperfect, such as my grammar. Habakkuk doesn't get this, does he? Habakkuk's answer is, yeah, but I'm not as bad as they are. Yeah, but we're terrible, but we're not as bad. Yeah, but God, but we've only got the five billionth of a gram here, and I'm complaining about that, but for goodness sake, don't send me a milligram of toxin. Don't send the Babylonians, God. And he doesn't realize, he doesn't realize that at the end of the day, God looks at them and says, yeah, you, you people in Judah are, are pretty bad. And he looks at the Babylonians and says, yeah, you people of Babylon, are, well, you're pretty bad. They're all bad. We're all bad. Habakkuk doesn't understand what God's doing. He, he knows that God's good. He knows all about God, but, but he does know the right thing to do at least. He knows to go to God. He takes his concerns to God. He complains to God, and then he goes up, and he goes up onto the city walls, onto his watchtower, and he, he watches and he listens. 
He's looking out to see what is God going to actually do now. How is God going to answer him? Uh, It says there, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, There I will wait to see what the Lord says, how he will answer my complaint. You can even translate that a little bit to um, how God is going to give me an answer when people complain against me, when I tell them, good news, the Babylonians are coming. But he goes and he waits on God. He, he's ready to hear God answer. You know, sometimes when life is tough and when it seems like what God is doing just doesn't seem to make sense, we need to actually go tell God about it and then wait for God to answer. Look out. Go where we can look to see where God is answering. Uh, I love that he goes up into his watchtower on, onto the walls like a watchman. And can you just picture a watchman going through the night, peering into the gloom for the coming of the dawn? Or peering into the gloom for the coming of a rider bringing good news? That's, that's what Habakkuk does. He, he goes, he goes, this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to go and I'm going to watch to see the good news from God. Because I know that God is good. And I'm going to trust Him that He's going to come through. He's going to do the right thing, whatever that is. And and it's there that God answers Him. I wonder whether sometimes... We complain to God and then complain that he doesn't answer because we're not actually waiting for him to answer us. I know I do that. I imagine it's a pretty common trait amongst us. But God comes to the waiting Habakkuk, looking for what God is going to do, and God says to him, Habakkuk, I've got an answer for you. And not just for you, I want you to write this down. I want you to make it clear. I want you to make it so that, so that a runner can, can run with it. The New Living Translation says so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. But, but literally it's so that he who hears it can run with it. Maybe that means so that you can share it with others. But I think it also means write it down, make it clear so that they, those who hear it can actually run with it. In, in our vernacular, as in make it the basis for their life. Make it the basis for how they walk, for how they run through life. And God says, even though it looks like it's not happening, even though it looks like I'm doing nothing, Habakkuk, even though it looks like the bad is just getting bad and the worse is just getting worse, even though it looks like that, write it down, make it clear, live your life based on what I'm going to tell you, Habakkuk, because even though it looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket, I am going to do what I'm going to do. Though it lingers, wait for it. It is sure, it is going to happen. Trust me on this Habakkuk. People would have been tempted to give up on this vision. Just like we are always tempted to give up on God's promises. We're always tempted. Why do you think the Bible speaks so much about perseverance? I like to say, if the Bible mentions something once, it's worth listening to. If it mentions it twice, 
uh, it's worth really listening to. If the Bible mentions it a few times, it's probably because we really need to get that message into our heads. And the Bible makes a big deal about persevering, about keeping true to the promises of God. Peter writes about uh, people wondering whether God is, is delaying, whether God is slow to act, people giving up meeting together. I think that's Corinthians. Paul writes about that. Because, wow, you know, it's been 2,000 years, and if Jesus was going to come back, surely he would have come back already. And it's the same thing here that God says to Habakkuk. Though it lingers, I'm asking you to trust me that what I say will actually happen. And you trust God on the basis of or what he's done in the past. That, that's how you trust everyone. You trust people based on your experience of them and on their trustworthiness. If you have someone who every time they visited your house steals your silver spoons, you're not likely to trust them to wash your dishes. But if you have someone who every time they come to your house has never stolen your silver spoons... For some reason, you'll award them by letting them wash your dishes. I'm not sure about the reward there. <laughs> God says to Habakkuk, the vision is waiting the right time. But will you trust me and live your life on the basis of what I've promised is going to happen? And he goes on and he, he, gives, some, he, he gives two ways to live. See, there's the way of the enemy, and then there is the way of the righteous. The enemy is one who certainly would not have listened to the vision from God. The enemy thinks that they are invincible. We saw last week they think that their own might is their God. God says uh, that they are puffed up. The New Living Translation says they're proud, but I, I like the term puffed up. It just, I think it's very uh, descriptive of that kind of thing, isn't it? And, and God says that they have desires that are not upright. They are swollen with pride. They, they're swollen with arrogance. Uh, that, that word for, for puffed up or proud there can also mean lose faith. The enemy loses faith. The enemy doesn't trust that what God says will happen. They don't believe that God is in charge. They don't believe that there will be a reckoning for evil. And when you don't believe that God is in charge, the result is that I will be in charge. And you rise and you elevate yourself to be the most important person in the world, which is what the Babylonians did with great effect. Many of us are puffed up. <laughs> but most of us who are puffed up also think that we're pretty good at hiding it. Can you ever tell when somebody's like really arrogant or really proud but really hiding it really well? 
Sometimes you can just, you can just sense behind their words. They're, they're just toying with you. There's a few people know what I'm talking about here. But get a puffed up person into a position where they're disinhibited and you will see just how much they think of themselves. Uh, get someone drunk. Uh, alcohol disinhibits people. And that's the image that we've got here in Habakkuk. We read over here, um, look at the proud. They trust in themselves. Their lives are crooked. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Um, Wealth is treacherous. The arrogant never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave. Like death, they are never satisfied in their greed. They've gathered up many nations and swallowed many peoples. They've swallowed many peoples. They are puffed up, arrogant, greedy, never satisfied, always wanting more and more and more and more and more. And what matters most is their own desires being satiated. But anyone who tries to find happiness at the bottom of a bottle or at the end of a conquest or at the end of anything that's based on stuff finds that happiness it's a mist it might look like a lake of happiness but it is just a surface mist that disappears when the sun comes But there is another way to live. You see, the way of the proud is to trust in yourselves, uh, to be crooked in your living. But there is another way. Even when the world seems to be going worse, God says the righteous will live by faith. Those who are upright will live on the basis of a committed trust in God on the basis of who God is and what God has promised. And at the end of the day, you look at that going, okay, that's very nice, God. It's a beautiful verse. The righteous will live by faith. But in the real world, doesn't it make more sense to go the way of the proud? I mean, you look at them. The the wicked seem to prosper. The righteous, well, they're on the floor somewhere, you know. But the wicked seem to just go from leaps to bounds. Those who push themselves forwards, those who deny God, they just seem to go on in life. Why should we trust God? Well, God goes on to answer. God says, I've got something for you victims of the powerful. I've got you uh, something here, Habakkuk, for you guys who are going to be taken away by the more powerful Babylonians. I'm going to give you a lament, Habakkuk, for you and your people, the captives, the ones who are, in your opinion, less evil. I give you this lament, this cry of sorrow, this sad song. But you know what's really interesting about the the sad song that God gives to the people of Judah and to Habakkuk? 
He actually gives him five sad songs. The sad songs that God gives to Judah and the people of Jerusalem and to Habakkuk are not sad songs saying, Oh no, I'm a victim. I'm dying right here. The sad songs are not the songs of victims, such as anyone who just heard that. The sad songs are sad songs for the Babylonians. God says to Habakkuk, basically, here is a time for you to sorrow over the strong ones. Over the ones who seem to just ignore me and go from strength to strength. Some translations say, woe to them. New Living Translation over here says, um, uh, where is it? What sorrow awaits you? Basically, these are a series of, oh no, alas for Babylon. Really, what God is saying is that although they seem to be having everything their own way and those who trust God seem to be having everything not their own way, at the end of the day, those who are puffed up, who do not live by trusting God, they are to be pitied. And pitied even now. Pitied even now. The puffed up ones think that they can get wealth by extortion. God says, oh, cry for them. Because their wealth is not their own, and one day the owners of that wealth will rise up and they will lose everything that they had. Cry for them. Cry for the powerful ones who, who think that they can keep themselves safe, who are so afraid that they, that they will do anything, hurt anyone, take anything they need in order to make themselves nests where they can, you know, can, can stave off the dangers of this world. God says cry for them because you know, they put in all this effort and they try so hard to be safe, but at the end of the day, they're not. The very building materials that they've used, God has crying out against them. The only things that are left alive, really, what does he say there? What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonorably? You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. But by the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you and the beams in the ceilings echo the complaints. Cry out for them, says God, because at the end of the day, they have no security. God says, lament for them, cry for them, because, you know, the puffed up ones, these proud ones who think that they can just take life by the horns and go for it, God says, they, they grow powerful empires by blood, they, they shed blood, they do whatever it takes, they will, they will hurt whoever it hurts, just in order to be strong and powerful and famous and incredible. 
I was listening on the news yesterday or even this morning about the Rohingya Muslims in, in um, uh, Myanmar, Burma. And they're being kicked out because, you know what, they, they don't belong in our nation. They're not native to here. And so they're attacked and they're burnt and they're destroyed. And the military over there seems to have all the power and to the very ones who they would attack, God says, cry for the ones who are in power. Cry for the ones who seem like they've got it all under control because all of, all of the hard work is just dross. In particular, Babylon over here, Babylon was a beautiful city. From what I can tell, it's a little bit like Perth. It's flat. But Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The hanging gardens of Babylon, these incredible things that they built there. Wide streets. Built at the expense of all the people that they attacked and took for slaves and, and exiled and destroyed and denuded the countryside and robbed the wealth of the other nations. They built a wonderful empire. But does it last? God says it doesn't last. Cry for them. One day, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters. But compared to that glory of God, all these wonderful things that they have made, they just disappear. They, they burnt up as in a fire. The splendor of Babylon is shown up as dross. Does anyone know what, do you, you all know what dross is? Um, if you look at when you melt metal down, uh, it melts down and all the impurities, the slag comes out to the top. The dross is the rubbish, the impurities that get thrown away. The wealth of Babylon is like dross. The splendor of Babylon is like dross compared to the glory of God, as is the splendor of Perth, as is the splendor of Australia, as is the splendor of everything that we do. You look at it and you go, this is amazing, this is incredible. Have you seen our bell tower? And it's amazing. But you just can't tell how amazing it is compared to how incredible God is. The moon is wonderful. Did you guys see the moon the last couple of days? It was huge. The moon's incredible, but as soon as you get the sun up in the sky, the moon's not that impressive, is it? It's the same with God. God's glory comes and covers the earth, and all of a sudden we go, yeah, those gardens were nice, but it doesn't quite match up. God says, cry for them. Because they think they're making stuff to last and it just doesn't. God says cry for those who have shamed and abused other people, even abused the lands around them, because they will be exposed before God. They, they think they have this incredible glory, but actually at the end of the day they'll just be covered with shame. All the shame that they've dealt out, God will shame them for it. 
And so God says, you guys who think that you are weak, you think that you're wasting your time trusting me and staying true to my promises. At the end of the day, if, if you go the way of power, if you go the way of making yourself glorious, that if you go the way of just indulging yourself, at the end of the day, you end up with nothing. You end up with nothing but shame. And God says right at the end there, cry for them, lament for them. Oh no, how sad for those who think that they can get right with the world by bowing to a piece of wood or to a stone or to an idol of any sort. Desperately, desperately doing whatever it takes uh, worshipping, waiting on lifeless stuff to give guidance when it's always been dead, when it's never been alive, when it has no breath. I mean, that was Babylon literally with idols. And, and uh, Habakkuk's got this image of their nets that they worship. But, but isn't it so true today as well? Oh, woe to those who think that they, that they can just get on in life, that they can succeed by worshipping at their idols. In Sunday school today, they're looking at the story of, of uh, Rachel and Leah. And, and, and in some ways, Leah's idol of, oh, if only my husband would love me. It's a great story. Read it at some time. Or today, you, you think of the people, oh, if only I could have three you know, investment properties and $1,000 in every one of my 1,000 bank accounts, then I will be fine. Or those who think, oh, if only I can be loved by people. If only my family adored me. If only I had the respect of the world. If only we were powerful as a people. It's an idol. Donald Trump's statement for America was, you know, make America great again. Do you know why that works so well? Because making America great is an idol. Because when America's great, then we will stand and everyone will look at us and go, whoa. Now have a go at America, but are we any different? Are we any different? God says, cry for those who think that they can get their security by calling out to stuff where there is no there's no one to answer even. I mean, we might go, yeah, that's all very well, but, you know, it seems to me that if you just go ahead in life, you go ahead in life. If you ignore God, if you just, you know, take a bit of pride for yourself, if you just set yourself up, if you do whatever it takes for you to get on in life, then you seem to get on in life. The arrogant flourish, and those who have the strength to not be concerned about who they step on get to the top of the ladder. That's the way of the world, isn't it? And it works. Why shouldn't we just... Be like that. And I think it's because God says, 
just remember that at the end of the day, the puffed up one who seems to have all the power and loves telling you about it is actually up for an incredible fall. They rely on their own power to survive. But, says God, the righteous one lives by faith. The righteous one is called to trust in the God who is actually alive as opposed to a piece of wood. To trust in the one who has promised that that what he says will happen. To trust in the one who is in his holy temple. Who is approachable. To live by faith, I think, means what, what we hear in verse 20. It means to be silent before God and to trust that he has it in hand. Habakkuk is just like us, is just like all of God's people through all of time. We have been chosen to be God's people, but we live in a violent world. And God doesn't say, if you become my people, I'll take you out of that violent world, because we're part of the violence, aren't we? God says, I want you in the midst of where you are, even where it seems to not make any sense. Trust me, because... Actually, it makes the most sense in the world. Trusting me is the only sensible thing to do. So right at the start, Habakkuk came out with this good old chestnut of we're not as bad as they are, God, are we? Uh, we're, we're bad, but we're not that bad. We're 90% bad, but we're not 95% bad. Uh, we're not that bad, God. And God said, Habakkuk, I've got, a, I've got two ways for you to live. You can either be puffed up and proud, or the righteous one can live by faith. But here's the problem, Romans 3 verse 23, there is no one righteous. Oh, sorry, 3 verse 10, there is no one righteous, no one who seeks God. All of them have fallen away. And we've got a bit of a problem because there's two ways to live. You can be puffed up or you can be righteous. And remember, if you have just a little bit of unrighteousness in you, that means you're unrighteous. And so how can you be righteous and live by faith if you're actually just a little bit unrighteous and I sad news, you're all a little bit unrighteous because you know, you, you're all probably looking at your watches going, I wish you would finish by now, which I don't know if that's unrighteous or not, but we've got a problem, don't we? Two ways to live, puffed up or, or righteous, and we're not righteous. We all fall in the category of the wicked. We cannot say, at least I'm not as bad as them. At least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I'm not as bad as them. Do you know what they did? At least I'm not like that. And by the way, we're going to be looking at this a little bit again next week as we look at the whole question of, of how do we approach the whole issue of gay marriage and, and how, is, how do we be Jesus in our culture at the moment. Um, that's next week's topic. But, but it's so tempting for us Christians to go and say, yes, but at least I'm a sinner, but I'm not that sort of sinner. Maybe you're all holy and don't do things like that. But we're all tempted to find our own security, to establish our own future, to establish our own prestige, to establish our own pleasure, to establish our own purposes. And these are the five woes that God cries out and has us cry out against Babylon, against the world. We're all tempted to those things. 
See, the only way for someone to be righteous is for them to be perfectly righteous, to do the good thing all the time, to be perfectly upright. Who can live by faith? The righteous one. And there is only one righteous one, that's God himself. The righteous will live by faith. God will live by faith. Oh, that's nice for God. But what about us? Well, says Paul, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17. Can we throw that up there, Wayne? I'm not ashamed of this good news, says Paul. Uh, it's about Christ. It's the power of God at work. It's saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right or righteous in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The gospel tells us about a righteousness that comes from God to us. We are made righteous, how? By believing. By putting our trust in Jesus. By putting our faith in Jesus. Jesus is perfectly righteous. He is God, become man. He's God with us. He died for our sins and he gifts his righteousness to all those who say, Jesus, I will follow you. I will trust you. How do we do that? We we put our faith in him. We trust him. It is by faith from first to last. Romans 8 says that God did this so that the just requirements of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit of God. The law's demands are met in Jesus, but God also looks at us and says, I want you to follow me, to live by faith, to live trusting as if I've got it in hand, to accept that my way is the best way, to accept that my way is the way without woes. Habakkuk chapter 2 has got no, oh no, for the victims, because the victims are the victors in Jesus. If they trust him. You know, to trust God's way, uh, to, to live by faith might be onerous. But, but it's the only way to life. To not give up, to persevere. To trust that ultimately no matter what happens, God has got it all in hand. That's what Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is on about. To say no matter what happens, no matter how much it seems like following you, God, is the stupid option. Actually, when you look at the bigger picture, it's the only sensible one. Got to remember that we are more than victors in Christ Jesus. Living, living in faith, living by faith, doesn't mean that you don't have any doubts or questions about God. Habakkuk certainly had a few of those. But it does mean persevering and trusting God and doing God's will. Can we throw Hebrews chapter 10 up? Wayne, thank you. Patient endurance, says the writer to the Hebrews, is what you need now so that you'll continue to do God's will. Then you'll receive all that is promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come, Jesus will return, and he will not delay, and my righteous one will live by faith. But I take no pleasure in one who turns away. Living by faith means living as though God is faithful, even when it seems 
to us like it doesn't make sense. Why would we do that? Habakkuk was writing about the Babylonians coming. And Habakkuk was told by God that although it looked like the Babylonians were strong and powerful and would last forever, they wouldn't. And yes, the Babylonians did come. And they took people into exile. And they were a horrible lot. But eventually, some of those who they had oppressed rose up against them. Darius the Mede took over, and the Babylonians fell. Why should we trust God? Well, because God's got a track record of being trustworthy. If God said, Habakkuk, write this down, it's going to happen, and it happened... What the writer to the Hebrews says is Jesus is coming back soon. It's going to happen. Do we then turn around and say, yeah, but life's easier without that? Or do we take the lesson from Habakkuk and say, you know what? Even though life seems easier, leaving Jesus out of the picture Even though life seems more comfortable just putting myself first and forgetting about others, at the end of the day, I'm going to trust God. He said he's coming back. He said that he will judge the living and the dead. He said that if I put my trust in him, I will be called righteous in him. And I'm going to live that now I'm going to live that now because God has proven himself time and time again. And I'm not going to deny that. Yes, ignoring God might seem easier in the moment. When the Romans were around, there were many Christians who were forced. They said, if you don't deny Jesus, we will kill you. Many of them said, well, in that case, let me deny Jesus and worship Caesar. But others of them, others of them said, in effect, you look like you've got all the power. It looks like this world would be so much easier for me if I just denied God. But I won't. He said that following him is the only way to life and I'm going to follow him no matter what. Though he slays me, yet will I trust in him. See, this is a good news story. God's saying, yes, this world's messed up and yes, it might go from worse to worse and, and yes, you'll be tempted to give up on trusting me but, but stay true because at the end, Everything except me crumbles and falls. 
but the righteous will live by my faithfulness. And the righteous will live by their trust in me. Amen. Friend.